Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and open banking fintech, Broncos. In this episode, we hear from Nikki Lahore, CEO and founder of Vita, and chairman and co-founder of the Indonesia Fintech Association, or AFTEC. We learn about Nikki's journey in Indonesia, from joining payments company Karduku and its acquisition by Gojek to spotting digital identity needs and founding Vita. Nikki also shares the parallel story of the Indonesia Fintech Association, an important organization in driving fintech policy and industry collaboration in Indonesia. Vita provides digital solutions for KYC and identity verification for financial service providers. You can learn more about them by visiting vita.id. Aftec, or the Indonesian Fintech Association, was founded in 2015 and now has over 350 members. You can learn more about them by visiting fintech.id. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. So Nikki, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about you and let's start with Kartuku. You founded Kartuku shortly after you finished your undergraduate studies in the U.S. in 2006. And at that point in time, you were really a pioneer in the digital payment space in Indonesia. Uh, and you led Kartuku until it was eventually acquired by Gojek in 2018. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about Kartuku, uh, how you decided to start a payments company at that time 15 years ago. Sure. No, so Kartuku was actually um, a, a turnaround situation. Um, so Kartuku was initially a debit card network, and I think, long story short, was aiming to be the, the nets of Indonesia. Um, I think when when I came around, my uh, I started to see an opportunity, um, well, problems and an opportunity. So the problems were that the infrastructure of uh, acceptance of electronic payments, um, be it credit cards uh, primarily at the time, and then eventually debit cards. Um, that's how early on we were. Um, there were probably only, uh, you know, very little debit card traffic. Most people knew uh, a debit card as an ATM card and, uh, and actually would go and withdraw cash from an ATM and then use the cash, even though it's a debit card. So that was sort of where, uh, when I returned, where Kartuku was at. And um, I think some of the lessons learned at that point in time, was Kartuku means my card. Um, as a debit card, it, it really, uh, it failed to take off. And it failed to take off despite actually having uh, key bank partnerships and actually a fairly large um, critical mass on the, on the cardholder side. So there were already more than uh, 8 million debit card holders. So it was actually a fairly large start. Now, I think what, what uh, was, was really underestimated at the time was the acceptance infrastructure and specifically the point of sale. And uh, at the time, all the infrastructure was extremely fragmented and it was really expensive because there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, CapEx that goes into investing into every single one of those uh, credit card point of sale credit card swipe machines, right? As a, a lot of people would refer to them. And, and everyone had their own, right? Every player had their own. Um, and you would often see at checkout five, six devices and every bank has their own. And the reality is that the majority of the cost of 
of, of building out a payments network was actually most heavily in this infrastructure, um, including for Kartuku. So at the time, uh, I think the difference that Kartuku was trying to make initially was uh, take on two parts of one, a debit card scheme, and then two, actually operating um, and providing all of that last mile infrastructure to the uh, bank members because they, it was just really um, cost prohibitive to engage and roll this out at scale. Uh, unfortunately, I think while Kartuku uh, team uh, initially had done a great job of, of building up the consumer base, the, the and even a decent um, points of uh, acceptance among a lot of major merchants, the issue was actually the, the performance of the network, the reliability. And because it was very inconsistent and services uh, weren't very reliable and networks weren't reliable, um, there was really a, a bad user experience. And at the end of the day, it, it failed to really gain traction because of that. So I think the philosophy when I came in was taking a look at, I think the, uh, you know, when I came in was trying to turn around the company and I looked at it and I said, look, I think it's, it's, it's a great goal. And while it's clear um, there is some underlying infrastructure that's missing there. Why don't we become the partner we wish we had? And let's be the foundation and the infrastructure that future Katukus, future uh, payment instrument players, um, future schemes, whether it's debit or e-money, could share a common level of infrastructure and we could accelerate overall um, you know, the adoption of electronic payments. So that really became the philosophy. The philosophy was, well, we couldn't do it because we didn't really have the infrastructure and the partner of somebody who a pretty strong service provider who's really strong in the infrastructure layer, who could solve a lot of the nitty gritty last mile problems. And we did it in a philosophy of, let's just provide this as an open network for everyone. And hopefully, um, through a principle of shared infrastructure, you know, shared economies, we'll, we'll eventually get there and be able to drive uh, adoption down to uh, lower and lower parts of, you know, not only modern retail, but ideally at one point to traditional retail. And then there was dreams expanded towards things of branches banking and how do we turn a, a point of sale, not only to a point of just, you know, acceptance for payments of, of uh, credit cards, debit cards, and e-money, but eventually a point of transaction and being able to create, you know, branchless teller networks. And, uh, and that's where a lot of the vision uh, started to go a lot further. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe I'll stop there first. <laughs> oh, that was, that was great, Nikki. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really like that, you know, becoming the partner that you wish you had. Um, and creating that that ecosystem for a lot of other players. I want to actually like talk about the the um, other end of your journey at Kukuku when uh, it was acquired by Gojek in 2018. From an e-hailing perspective, it makes a ton of sense to work with a payments company. But I'm wondering, from a payments provider perspective, um, you could have partnered with many players in the industry uh, in many industries. Um, why why did this acquisition by Gojek make sense for Kukuku? So. Uh... Prior to the acquisition of Gojek, I think Kartiku uh, had made a, a quite a decent amount of headway in trying to develop shared infrastructure. Um, we had 23 financial institutions on our network. We had rolled out about 180,000 points of sale um, across Indonesia, across 150 cities in Indonesia. So it, it was a, a pretty painful process, to be honest, setting up all the all the physical presence and the and the feet on the ground to actually go and physically deploy uh, payment infrastructure in each store, train the cashiers, train the merchants, um, and, and and perform the maintenance and and look after the network and build a whole network operation center. So we had done a lot. Uh, I think we were quite early uh, in in 2006. We were definitely very early, but even. Um, by the time it was uh, right around, I would say, you know, 2015 onwards, we saw that the market was rapidly changing. Um, and the market was rapidly changing in a, in a sense of 
we were as much as I think philosophically shared infrastructure, uh, especially among the tech community, is something that everybody will you know, generally agree with nowadays. Um, it's not always a popular view. And I think at the, in the early days, we, we, we did have our challenges to find uh, what we'd call an anchor acquirer, right? So somebody who had the appetite to, to really push acceptance and not see infrastructure as a competitive edge or as a competitive edge against another acquirer or another payment network, but take a bit more of a long-term progressive view that the real competition is cash. And that really, if we will work together, as much as we may compete and for the same customers or we'll share a wallet, um, competing on infrastructure is not a really healthy level of competition. And actually that's an area where collaboration can, can really lead to you know, a rising tide of all ships and lead to a bigger market share overall for everyone. Um, again, very, very uh, easy to talk about, very easy for people to agree on theoretically. Um, but when it comes down to business interests and you know, a lot of times the, the short-term interests unfortunately win and, and, and not everyone can uh, afford to take those longer term, more progressive views. So I think there was a lot of issues where, um, and, and beyond that, we saw that uh, central bank was in Indonesia, Bank Indonesia had uh, already acknowledged that they were going to set up some form of a, a national payment gateway. We thought that there was uh, potentially a lot of uh, movement in that shared infrastructure direction, but it didn't quite get there from a regulatory perspective. Um, and without the regulators really stepping in, it's, it's a bit difficult um, because it's sort of the uh, tragedy of the commons, if you will, uh, if, you, if you just leave things to free market forces. And these are examples, and you've seen it in the telco world with towers, uh, every telco building their own towers until eventually the regulator steps in and says, no, 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 we should share towers, we should share the infrastructure, and it'll make the whole industry a lot more efficient and be able to do and focus on things like universal coverage, focus on making sure that infrastructure reaches the outlying areas rather than staying concentrated, in this case, at the same modern retail, at the same hypermarkets, at the same supermarkets, at the same you know, FMB chains. Um, and wanting to see it go further down, obviously, you know, it's a bit of chicken and egg, the acceptance has to be there before the transactions can come and the adoption. And then of course, the volume of transactions to get things to a sustainable level. So that is where it was, I would say challenging. And um, we also saw, you know, uh, the, the rise and of course, at that time of, of WeChat, um, you know, sort of just taking the world by storm and, and Alipay taking the world by storm. And I think that's when uh, there was definitely a lot of interest um, in, uh, you know, in foreign investment uh, and there was a lot of M&A activity going on. So part of it, I would say, is the stakes were heating up and, and that's a good or bad thing. Uh, you know, I think in the end, change is coming. Uh, that was very clear. Um, and then the question was, you know, do we continue? And, and if so, uh, what's our position? And as, a, as, as an independent, um, needing to, of course, make some strategic moves of, uh, of doubling down and, and, and making sure that we have the right alliances in place. And, uh, or was it a time to potentially exit? And, and this is where, I think at the time we looked at it and um, some of the shareholders had been in there for quite some time. So I think it was, there was definitely a, an appetite for exit. Um, and beyond that, I think from the company's perspective, uh, seeing uh, Gojek as really trying to push the envelope to new areas of payment acceptance, especially leveraging the ecosystem very similar to Grab of, of all the, the drivers, the partners and going to a new market 
and being able to push payment acceptance into a new ecosystem. Um, E-money had been talked about ever since M-Pesa in 2006, and everybody had constantly been referencing M-Pesa for more than 10 years. But I think that was the first concrete example we saw specifically in Indonesia. And because Kartuku is in Indonesia and focused on Indonesia, um, we, we thought that the project was uh, really an interesting direction for a company um, to continue on and, and have uh, Gojek as, as an anchor in, in building out, you know, further payment adoption. Got it. So that was a big change for Kartuku. They went to, uh, went to Gojek. And you uh, actually then started Vita, which is where you are now. You um, started Vita Digital Identity. Yeah, so I, you know, I think it was, uh, um, you know, salute to the, the Gojek team and, and what they've continued to do. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to see that the whole ecosystem, in fact, you know, between uh, Gopay, Ofo, Dana, Lingaja, it's, they've really turned around adoption. So kudos to those teams that have pushed really, I think, adoption to a payment adoption to a whole new level. I mean, for 360 million e-money accounts in Indonesia from, I would say, prior to these players engaging, only 6 million, right? So, I mean, that's that's really impressive, I think, what the industries have done. Um, frankly, for me, I think I had been, at that point, um, I, I took a bit of a sabbatical, and uh, in between, it didn't last very long. Well-deserved, yes. <laughs> so it was about 12 years in, in, um, in payments. And I think at that point, and specifically, specifically acquiring. Um, so it was a long time in a, in a, in a very niche focused space that I, I started to explore a little bit more. Um, actually, during my sabbatical, a bit of my passion projects did in, that didn't quite um, sort of you know, materialize. I think we had dreams of pushing financial inclusion and, and dreams of, of really bringing, uh, you know, access to financial services really at the bottom of the pyramid. And um, during my sabbatical was very inspired by the work in, in, in India at Adhar and what they had done with digital identity and, and biometrics. And also seeing the Indonesian government um, you know, between the Dukchapil uh, and the Ministry of Home Affairs do a fantastic job of actually rolling out um, national ID coupled with deduplicated unique biometric identification um, to the majority of the population already at that point in time. So uh, I actually had started, uh, it wasn't actually intentional in the beginning to think about Vita in that way, but um, at the FinTech Association. So after, during Kartuku, I also got involved with founding the Indonesian FinTech Association, Association or AFTEC. And one of the first policy areas that we worked on, um, because I think as a result of seeing how, you know, I think the players at that time, we weren't coordinated enough in uniting our voices uh, about policy matters that we thought were important especially on things like um, that aren't necessarily controversial, things like data security standards, things like interoperability standards. Um, and then of course, one of the other key pieces of infrastructure that everyone was advocating for, um, and not so much me from a Kartuku hat at the point in time, was around KYC and digital signatures. It was the number one pain point that uh, everyone sort of rallied behind. And this was fintechs and uh, financial institutions. So banks, insurance companies, multifinance, everybody unanimously agreed, including the regulators, including um, Central Bank, OJK, Cominfo, everybody agreed that this was the key to driving financial inclusion and making uh, overall adoption of digital financial services um, more ubiquitous. And I think at that point in time, we started to realize that, okay, you know, everyone agrees, great. And uh, I think a bit naively embarked on that journey, um, thinking, okay, everyone agrees, this shouldn't be so hard. Um, but it was one of the most difficult uh, challenges with the FinTech Association because uh, just getting 
everyone to, because there are so many stakeholders involved with different perspectives, sort of harmonizing all the regulations and, and really engaging who's, who would be taking the lead for which pieces of KYC and digital signatures and what would eventually turn into you know, certificate authorities and digital certificates and digital signatures and legally binding digital signatures, which requires, you know, the Ministry of Law to also recognize that. I mean, this there were so many stakeholders involved, and of course, you know, the uh, the AMLCTF authorities. So it, it was uh, a bit off a lot more than than we initially had imagined. But I think next thing I know, years on realized I'd spent about um, about two and a half years at that point in time working on identity, uh, identity policy and working on KYC policies and digital signature policies and finally pushing it across the line and being able to work with uh, the Ministry of ICT, for example, on setting up electronic transactions acts and certificate authorities and you know valid digital signatures um then realizing hey this is this is a new opportunity this is a new market we've been looking at this for a while it happens to be dealing with authentication and the type of information security that is the heart of what i've been doing for a very long time um so vita was born and vita was born out of much more of a cybersecurity context than a digital signature document management platform context. So I think you know that was where we identified that there was still uh, an opening there in the, in the market um, to work on multi-factor authentication, to work on improving cybersecurity standards and not having to uh, overload consumers or or businesses with too much jargon and terminology around cryptography and deliver a really simple user experience leveraging facial recognition um, to seem like, hey, all you're doing is a selfie and you get rid of passwords and OTPs and pins and, and all of this painful manual onboarding and all these painful wet signatures, all of it you know, can be boiled down to the simple UX of a selfie. And so that's what Vita does. And we try and make um, really complex cybersecurity really easy to use uh, for the consumer first and foremost. And we work together with frankly, lots of tech companies uh, and lots of FinTech companies to be able to empower them by giving, uh, providing a, uh, a tightly built um, SDK and or a set of APIs that can leverage um, public key infrastructure, secure elements, and facial recognition, as well as liveness detection, and come up with this whole suite of solutions that are all fully integrated, and at the end of the day, allow for uh, tech companies to just better engage their consumers, whether it's onboarding or transaction authentications. Thanks, Nikki. That's quite the origin story, uh, you know, and so intertwined with AppTech, which we are going to talk about. I am, I am wondering, who are your customers at Vita, and what is the implication of this kind of technology for, you know, mass market consumers, for banks, for even government regulators? Yeah, so I think, I mean, that's the, uh, that is probably one of the more challenging questions is, you know, the I think the fintech use cases are probably the most obvious and 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 I would say the simple part of what Vita does is imagine face ID is married with a government ID right so that's essentially what we do now all the times that face ID pops up whether it's unlocking your phone um, buying content or buying an application um, you know, through through one of the online stores, um, we're we're not replacing uh, the payment rails. We're not trying to change that. We are not actually a fintech company. We're, we're a cybersecurity company, and that was sort of the the pains that I had dealt with in the past of trying to build uh, public key infrastructure and have again the same theme of independent infrastructure. 
Um, and I think this time around is actually taking a lot of the principles that we learned in, in payments, in the physical payments world, which has extremely robust uh, security architectures and bring that into the mobile world, um, which is a lot easier said than done. Uh, and making sure that we are that we are really positioned in an extremely uh, neutral way. That again, uh, we hope to be a, a platform, a, a utility of sorts, to help enable um, both large, you know, tech companies and enterprises to small startups to be able to implement best practice security from day one. Um, because the reality of it is, cybersecurity is really expensive. Um, it's really difficult to build and, but at the same time, it's a bit chicken and egg, you know, if you don't have it scaling without it presents a lot of risk. And we, we're trying to figure out how to help with that barrier again of, you know, a high entry barrier of not only capital, but technical expertise and know-how and, and democratize it and make it easier for not only payments companies, but lending and peer-to-peer -peer lending. In the end, we just want to get rid, our competitor is the, the ink and paper, right? And, and, and presenting a physical ID and, and who knows where that information is going. And at the same time, trying to help companies quickly evolve to the latest regulatory waves around personal data protection. Uh, around new consumer demands, around privacy that are all totally legitimate. Um, but going through all of those audits and, and all of those and setting up all that infrastructure and ensuring neutrality, ensuring that there's that, you know, uh, consumer or a user's consent is properly obtained and that information is securely stored, securely transmitted and properly shared and all those audit trails are, are properly maintained is, is not an easy affair. And, and that's where um, we are a combination of trying to help with personal data protection acts and, and cybersecurity acts and online transaction acts. And we take away that complexity of, you know, and in a sense provide a level of reg tech um, and that is the way we kind of see ourselves. So how do we help uh, manage compliance that is needed in today's world as cybersecurity issues only are becoming more and more uh, needed because the reality is cybercrime is at an all time high and that's not going away. That trend is only moving in one direction, right? So, and a lot of the, the way um, building Secure architecture really takes that committed mindset from day one, and it's not easy. So that's where uh, we have a really unique set of expertise that we focus on. Uh, we do a lot around cryptography, a lot around a lot around secure element, and you know, uh, my my engineering team might bore most people to death about about these types of algorithms, but that's uh, you know that's what we geek out about and um, and hopefully we can we can take care of some of that for for the entire community yeah that's great Nikki. i can see some parallels for sure around uh you know vita wanting to replace uh replace pen and paper going back to kartuku wanting to replace you know cash in the market so definitely a great way of thinking about the products that we want to we want to pursue before we talk about aftec i have to ask one more question on um vita you know, in your experience with Vita, is Indonesia unique when it comes to digital identity? Vita has a footprint also in Singapore and India. Um, so I'm wondering, what's unique about Indonesia? Are you drawing lessons from, from other markets, either emerging markets or what others consider developed markets? So I think um, India has been a big inspiration for us. And again, back to Adhar. And I think um, Nanda Nilakani and his team um, Ramon Varma, and they've, they've done a, an amazing job of being really uh, exemplary visionaries to not only build a, a digital identity system, but come up with an extremely powerful use case. And that's um, government to citizen or government to person payments, GDP payments, and, and being able to solve a lot of identity fraud with welfare distribution. And I think that's been an incredibly inspiring story. It's something that uh, at Kartuku, we, we had a, 
we have had a few projects in the area, but never managed to build the kind of scale that, of course, Adhar has happened to, has been successful with transforming and reaching more than 260 million and opening 260 million in unbanked accounts and reaching down to the bottom of that pyramid. Uh, and all by doing it through identity verification and validation. So I think that's where we drew a lot of inspiration. Um, we saw some of the unique aspects where the Indonesian um, infrastructure uh, actually had a few interesting um, different advantages. And I think that's where, um, well, advantages and disadvantages. I think there was the, the database was, uh, you know, the Indonesian National Identity Database was is definitely uh, created and, and also deduplicated with biometrics, but also had, you know, smart card infrastructure deployed. So it was a combination of a potentially, you know, higher security requirements, um, but at the same time, trying to unlock the potential of you know, authentication, leveraging these sorts of IDs to help facilitate same things as, as GDP payments in Indonesia. So these are a few of the opportunities that, um, that Vita is, is hoping to continue to hopefully push forward and, uh, and drive financial inclusion, as well as, you know, try and uh, help solve a lot of identity fraud and, and, and provide more welfare to a lot of people in need, especially now in COVID times. A few sort of you know personal motivations that um, and that not only me but the team we, we really take to heart in terms of really some of the more aspirational impact goals that, that we hope to have. Got it. Um, well Nikki now um, th thanks for sharing that. Um, we do have to spend some time talking about the very the other very important hat that you wear as the co-founder and chairman of AFTEC, uh, the Indonesia FinTech Association which you, you mentioned earlier, uh, founded in 2015, now has over 350 member organizations. You talked a little bit about um, you know, how it was born and the work that it does, but maybe you can talk a little bit more specifically on the activities that AFTEC focuses on um, and specifically how it shapes public policy. Sure. Um, I think there's, from day one, uh, AFTEC was really born out of uh, trying to drive uh, policy advocacy. And I think what we, what we had intended at the time was to um, unify a lot of the, the industry's voice so that the regulators and authorities could be, find it easier to just engage with us as an industry. And it, it started with as simple as, you know, I think there's four pillars. We, we aligned with the goals of the, the administration to drive financial inclusion targets. Uh, set out by the president, and we cascaded that down to uh, access, usage, and quality of financial services, digital financial services, specifically for AFTEC, and then looked at different uh, organized uh, working groups, which uh, frankly started with a bunch of surveys uh, to each of the members and said, hey, what are your pain points? What are your regulatory pain points? Um, I think the key thing that AFTEC does is we don't solve every problem, but we try and identify what are the top, top, top few problems and help uh, the industry self-organize and unite around a common topic, which sometimes we have difference of uh, semantics or a different vocabulary, when in fact our, uh, the intent of what we're trying to solve is the same. So the first layer is actually just setting out a, a charter of what are the problems we want to solve at a high level and what are the detailed regulatory aspects and getting everyone to agree to a common language and a common uh, charter that we stand behind and then be able to uh, frankly program manage and allocate a lot of the valuable volunteer resources. Um, AFTEC is, is very much a volunteer driven organization where sea uh, levels of of all the fintech companies all donate their time, get involved uh, directly. And I think one of the hard parts is making sure that we use everyone's time wisely and efficiently. And it's making sure that each person has a clear role and we have the segregation of roles and responsibilities so that we can all optimize our impact in a specific way in our field of expertise 
And I think that's, that's really what Aftec generally does and does really well. I think after that and creating good cadences with regulators and creating uh, you know, a structured rhythm with uh, OJECA, the Financial Services Authority, or Bank Indonesia, our central bank, um, and then being able to facilitate a much more streamlined and organized conversation and not raising 20 different points when in reality, we only should be talking about one, two, or three. And focusing that discussion, being able to provide the research, being able to do the homework on the policy front, uh, working together with knowledge partners uh, and consulting firms to be able to do uh, global benchmarking, as well as working with law firms to actually go through legal and regulatory analysis and provide concrete examples of policy recommendations or changes that we would advocate and be very specific about where the points were and when regulators were being able to issue a uh, new regulations being have be able to have the privilege of being able to be part of that public consultation and read a lot of those uh, proposed changes and be able to provide feedback practical feedback about what this would mean from an implementation perspective to smooth out the implementation of new regulations as well. And to be able to be, uh, you know, hopefully a partner and help socialize to the community um, what the latest changes are. So that was really where it was born. And then over time, uh, more community events got born out of it. Last year, the Indonesia FinTech Summit and Expo was uh, co-chaired by Ojeka and Bank Indonesia. And from there, we, we managed to have a really good turnout of about more than 11,000 uh, attendees to the, to the expo. And we had over 1,000 delegates uh, show up with uh, over 25 panels of 100 plus uh, speakers. So it was, a, it was a fantastic event. And I think that's what encouraged us to, okay, to get more involved in driving the community and knowledge sharing and best practices. And then beyond that, working with in terms of literacy and education to the public. So we also collaborate with the, uh, with the media and help educate journalists on, you know, what is FinTech because it's, it's, there are so many verticals in FinTech and explaining the different nuances of different business models and, and making sure that controversial topics do get addressed and that we, we do, you know, we talk about issues around, you know, predatory practices and making sure that uh, consumers can easily identify which companies are, are bona fide and, and, and really leveraging a best practice and 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 where to where to watch out where to where to be you know take caution and how to make sure that consumers interests are protected so that's generally where we uh where we work the, the team has grown at Aftec. we're proud of the the secretariat it's a 10-person team and, and thank again thank you to the gates foundation for supporting us and uh giving us the donor money to help scale up and I think from there, we, we, we publicly share to all of our members, all the research, all the white papers that's built. It's all free of charge. I think at the end of the day, it's just trying to help spread best practices and promote uh, responsible and sustainable uh, development of digital financial services. Great. Thanks, Nikki. Um, sounds like Actec is very busy doing uh, many important things. Nikki, I'm wondering about the different stages of setting Actec up. Uh, and the interests of the different parties in the ecosystem. As you said, it's a very complicated ecosystem. <laughs> so I think the first stage was, it was really a, a loose alliance among uh, some of the leading payments players. And we would joke around because we would, were competitors, but I think that's where it, the first stage, I think took, took everyone to take a comment that, hey, although we compete, um, let's work together on growing the industry. And, and setting those differences aside and realizing that while we may compete day to day from a payment gateway perspective, our interests from a regulatory perspective are the same. And this is where we should collaborate. So I'd say that's the first and most important step and, and getting, um, I would say, leadership of a lot of the, the FinTech companies to have a meeting of minds and, and take that progressive view that, hey, if each one of us go to the regulators alone and have these fragmented conversations, the regulators are going to burn all their time 
just meeting us and hearing like 10 different company intros and pitches or 100 company intros and pitches. When are we going to talk about policy? Instead, if we actually self-organize and clear the clutter and have a really focused conversation, we can actually help because the industry, the regulators want our industry to grow. We have a common interest, but we ourselves have responsibility to self-organize. And I think that's when that was the first and most important stage. And I think the second was being able to be acknowledged by the regulators that, hey, we're credible and we're going to do the hard work. And we were given the opportunity. Um, you know, we were given the challenge by the, the chairman of Wojeka at the time. Uh, he told us, hey, we've been looking for you guys and we want to promote your growth. Our concerns are how do you manage consumer protection? Okay, our concern number one, we want to do, we want to promote your growth. We want to promote industry growth. However, please understand our perspective of the risk we want to mitigate. Number one, we want to ensure there's consumer protection. Two, make sure you mitigate money laundering and terrorism financing. Three, shadow banking. And basically, that's it. And four, avoid systemic financial risk. So we said, okay, that's you know simple enough for us. And things like data security standards really aren't um, aren't controversial. And as a payments company back then, it would save us the hassle of getting audited, you know, by every single bank again on the same standard when we've already been independently audited. And it's because a lot of these standards weren't, you know, officially recognized. And we we went through a lot of those pains. So I think that's where you know there was a lot of just basic harmonization, regulatory harmonization, if you will. And I think once people start to feel that there's that benefit, immediate benefit, that, hey, if we pool our time together and we tackle a few common challenges together, it actually does help us all. And I think, you know, more progressively now, uh, as the FinTech Association has been appointed as a self-regulatory organization or a standard-setting body, uh, BioJCA. Now the expectations have, have gone up a lot higher, and it's really about how do we ensure the sustainable growth and and make sure we also ensure that the illegal fintechs and predatory practices don't happen. And how do we take a more active sort of supervisory role? And I think that's where we started to engage a lot more uh, independents and audit firms and accreditation firms. So it's not the fintech association that's auditing or supervising. It's how do we work within the industry as a whole, including our, our supporting partners to, to help develop the right standards and get it accredited and have it be publicly recognized that in the end we can ensure who has proper level of uh, sort of data governance and compliance, for example, versus those that don't and, and making sure that the level of uh, risk mitigation and controls are appropriate to the tiering of, you know, sort of where each company is so that we don't stifle, you know, startup growth by putting on a ton of compliance from day one. How do we make sure we tier it so that as the risk progressively increases, then obviously the, the amount of compliance also scales accordingly. So these are sort of the different stages I would say is one is, you know, sort of First is that alliance, and then two is really getting to a, a concrete policy, uh, common policy objective, and getting some quick wins, and and then and then starting to cascade and bring in and be inclusive to as many of the uh, industry players that everybody um, and frankly you know whoever really wants to take an active role and volunteer their time and drive you know uh, in a professional way. Uh, the right policy agenda on behalf of the industry's interests and not which if your interests are industry interests, that's fine, but not just a pure self-interest. I think that's what made, um, that's what's been a big part of uh, Aptec's success. So hopefully that answers that question. Thanks, Nikki. Um, we've been talking a lot about, you know, Aptec's role in shaping policy, but the question to you is, do you agree that it's it's necessary to have personal relationships to succeed in the Indonesian fintech environment? Uh, and if you do agree, uh, do you see this as enabling or blocking innovation? I think 
to a large degree, um, personal relationships are needed in all business environments. I think the degree of personal relationships, uh, sometimes it's, it's really, if you kind of boil it down, what is that personal relationship really about? A lot of times it's about trust. And, and when you don't have um, some of the public infrastructure um, in, in more of the developed world of, for example, uh, you know, uh, you know and, and practices and good governance practices, and as much of those robust corporate good governance practices, it's, uh, it becomes a little bit more challenging and, and hence the you know, reliance more on personal relationships. Um, I think over time, as hopefully, uh, you know, and this is something that AFTEC is trying to also do, is develop more uh, and help adoption of internationally recognized um, standards that over time, it's less becomes less about that personal relationship of how do I trust this payments company or another payments company. And it's about these developing these clear accreditation standards that fall within international standards. And I think as, as that continues, um, hopefully that's where uh, the industry can, can develop and, and become more open to, to more players. So I think that's really what is the fundamental issue is that it's a nascent industry um, and it still needs a lot of work. And I think the more, frankly, the community engages in shaping it proactively and not saying that's not my problem, that's the government's job, that's not my job. I think the more we take that proactive view and, in, and choose to engage, the faster that, and if we can encourage everyone else to take that same mentality of, hey, civic engagement, let's all engage, let's all lift this together, um, we can actually move things a lot faster than, than you would imagine. And I think that's been uh, you know, big testimony and thanks to everybody at the FinTech Association and all the rest of the, uh, you know, everyone who's really donated so much of their valuable time. But that's, I think at the end of the day, it takes that progressive view and, and, and hopefully um, that can start to, you know, overcome some of the uh, sort of challenges of business practices of relying on personal relationships as a, as a proxy of trust. So Nikki, that's an amazing vision and I hope we get there quickly. What would you say to a FinTech founder who may not have those personal relationships today, or maybe it's a foreigner who wants to set up shop in Indonesia, what would you tell them to do today to navigate the ecosystem? I think, you know, in Indonesia, um, it always helps. And, you know, obviously now it's difficult in, in, in the COVID-19 context, but it helps to be on the ground. It helps to be on the ground, it helps to engage with the industry and industry players and just get to know people. And I think you'll be surprised how open people are um, to potentially exploring how to work together. And it doesn't happen overnight, right? I mean, kind of, it does take some personal chemistry, but I think there, there does need to be that sort of, I would say that level of you know, commitment to just giving a shop. The way that I wouldn't say this is unique to Indonesia. I mean, if I were to go and try and set up shop in Vietnam, that doesn't happen overnight either, right? I mean, I go and get to know the community, get involved and contribute, contribute what you can and pay it forward. And I think uh, being recognized for giving to the community, you'll be surprised uh, what, what may come back. And uh, I think taking that longer term views you know, as idealistic as it may sound, um, I can tell you that, you know, when we started the FinTech Association, I, that's all the objective I had was pay it forward, um, give back to the community, and hopefully make it better for, for everyone else to move forward. And, and since then, made a lot of great friends and, uh, and deepened my, my network and my relationships uh, around the community and, and that's helped me tremend uh, tremendously, even, especially with, with Vita. So I think it, it comes back in ways you won't expect. Got it. That's really inspiring, Nikki. Um, and your story has been so inspiring. Uh, we're just about out of time. Um, any, any last words, anything else you want to share with the audience here today? Oh, I think, you know, to any FinTech founders out there, you know, it's, uh, um, 
be patient, right? There's plenty of opportunity, um, but at the same time, as much as I think a lot of founders can can start by uh, looking at models that have worked in other markets and trying to figure out how to sort of localize a model, um, almost take the off sort of the reverse approach, uh, be on the ground, uh, find some concrete problems that you understand really well, and and focus on on those specific use cases and that specific uh, adoption, and just drive value that way, and not don't have don't start with a super app dream. Don't start with I'm going to build WeChat, right? I think be realistic and be pragmatic, and and find a specific area that is close to your heart that you've worked on. And I think at the end of the day, you know, what are you willing to spend 10,000 hours on? And I think if you're willing to commit 10,000 hours to it, you're gonna end up seeing things that most people don't. And I think those are the times that you'll find your niche in your space and, and truly where you can bring value. And once you have that, being patient, working in the community, being open, um, takes a little bit of luck, but hopefully you'll like meet the right people to, to, to scale it up and make it, a, make it evolve into the dream you have. Great, thank you so much, Nikki. That's amazing advice. Um, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for, to Apex and Broncos for supporting us and thank you our audience for being here. Hope to see you again next time. Take care. And now a word from our sponsors. My name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the green room it's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the green room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base you can find out more about apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels keynotes uh, master classes that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there thanks for tuning in to this episode of the green room with amrita veer listen to us on spotify apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates you can also visit amritavir.com to get more information join our mailing list and just reach out to us you can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.